This week on Pop Culture Confidential, prolific filmmaker Joe Swanberg moves to Netflix with his series Easy, a collection of stories about the complicated thing that is modern love, sex, and romance. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Joe Swanberg may be the hardest working filmmaker in the indie world. At 35 years old, he already has 29 director credits to his name, and in 2011, he made six feature films in one year. He's considered a major figure in the mumblecore movement. It's a term that refers to a genre characterized by naturalistic dialogue, small budgets, and plots that often focus on relationships. And Swanberg's filmmaking process does seem almost Cassavetian. He works on a micro-budget, his stories are almost always centered in Chicago, and many even filmed at his own house, with his wife, filmmaker Chris Swanberg, and their kids often included. The stories are about modern love and relationships, and they seem quite personal to me, or at least quite true. He relies heavily on improvisation in his films, for example, Digging for Fire, Happy Christmas, and Drinking Buddies. And he's attracted big-name actors like Greta Gerwig, Mark Duplass, Olivia Wilde, Anna Kendrick, and Brie Larson. Joe Swanberg has been called an American auteur, and he's been compared by critics to the French New Wave, Loche von Trier, and even Ingmar Bergman. But now he's gone more mainstream than he probably ever has before with his series Easy that he created, wrote, and directed for Netflix. Easy is eight separate episodes, each showing a new relationship and aspect of modern love, based in Chicago, of course, and starring actors such as Orlando Bloom, Maureen Ockeman, Mark Maron, Dave Franco, Hannibal Buress, and Elizabeth Razor, to name a few. According to this study, if I was doing less laundry and less dishes, we would be having more sex. It's not our fault if you feel emasculated. Exactly. You're saying that the women are less likely to want to fuck the guy if they're making more money. Bam! No. Okay. I want your body. You want to set up a Tinder account for what purpose? Well, so we're like a gay sexy couple is... Seeking another woman. You know I got it, I want you to think of my vagina as a beautiful, sexy thing. You made that with your dick. I sure did. There is his. That's his. He's got your little baby dick, too. Oh, my God. I don't think I can move. We're 15 years in a relationship. His cock doesn't get rock hard. You say we're done, and it doesn't feel that way to me. It's got to be about more than that. Yeah. I don't want to fuck you. There's something else missing. Yes. Hi there. Oh, Mr. No, this is the voice you're doing. First of all, I'm a, I'm a construction worker, right? So why am I fixing your sink? So, Joe Swanberg, thank you so much for being on the show, and congratulations on the very excellent Easy. Thank you. Nice to be here. I want to start, we're going to talk a lot about that, but I want to ask you something, because apparently we have something in common. You moved around a lot as a kid. and I as did. I did as well. And I find this really interesting with roots and everything being being pulled up. So I've conducted over the years sort of a very unscientific personal little study about whether this has worked out for people, a good thing and in your career as a creative person, or if it was difficult. How, how do you see that? Um, I would say it was difficult at the time and a really good thing in retrospect. I mean, especially as, as a filmmaker, um, it, it almost feels like moving around prepared me for the lifestyle that I currently live, which is, you know, you, you have to form these little 
very quickly you have to form these little family units where you are able to get very close to people, open up to them emotionally, share a lot. And then the film ends and, you know, I, I mean, you may never see those people again. And you, you have to kind of be okay going and doing that again and again and again. And, you know, there are relationships that you form that sort of uh, exist, start to exist outside of the work. But um, it's really uh, a strange thing, I think. And so having moved around a lot and made a lot of close friends who then I moved somewhere else and didn't see those people ever again, uh, I now feel like that you know, it, it was sort of like filmmaker boot camp or something. I found that I, I think I feel exactly the same way as a journalist. There's something also when you're very young about relating to new people all the time and having to, you know, make yourself um, interesting or, or, or find a place in their group that that is really good for certain things and really sad in other ways. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but just briefly for for the listeners, where did you move around? It was in the states, of course. It was, yeah. Well, I, I was born in Detroit. And then uh, I moved to Lexington, Kentucky, where my dad was finishing college. And then uh, Augusta, Georgia, Anniston, Alabama, Kingsland, Georgia, Concord, California, which is a suburb of San Francisco. Then I lived on an island in the Pacific Ocean called Kwajalein for two years. <laughs> and then I finished eighth grade in Florida, Rockledge, Florida. And then I moved to Illinois to Naperville, which is a suburb of Chicago. And then I went to film school in Illinois, and then I moved into the city after film school. But all these, the, most of these moves were like when you were still pretty before, much a Before high school, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, yeah. and was your dad, what is you? So the, this information, it wasn't kidding that you moved around a lot. <laughs> um, um, what did your dad do, just briefly, or your parents? He uh, was an engineer. And so he was working for, often for engineering firms that did government contracts. And so I kind of moved like an army kid, you know. What are the different aspects of relationships that interested you when you came up with this idea to begin with? Well, the idea was really exciting to me for its potential to explore a lot of different characters. And, you know, I was kind of afraid of TV because uh, having watched a lot of successful shows kind of run out of steam after a couple seasons uh, and not having a real model outside of maybe maybe British TV, which seems to do short seasons and then wrap it up and be done with it. You know, American TV basically will just run until the audience goes away. And, you know, I didn't know of any characters that I felt I wanted to follow for that long, you know, or, or, or sort of like maybe two or three main characters. And so the anthology format was really appealing Um and then actually the relationships that grew out of that were, you know, for me were much more wide ranging than what's represented in the first season of the show because I, I pitched Netflix about 15 episode ideas and then we, you know, we sort of together chose the eight that we would do. So, you know, what's, what's present in the first season is really a combination of what was interesting to me, but also interesting to the executives that I was working with at Netflix. And so they got to pick and choose a bit. Yeah, exactly. And, and even the age ranges of the characters and some things like that didn't solidify until I had cast 
the show. So I, I maybe knew some of the characters would be in their 20s versus 30s versus 40s, but um, there was, uh, uh, you know, as I was casting and putting together these eight, there was an effort to make sure that they didn't overlap too much, you know, that, that we sort of used the eight to spread uh, the different relationship potentials around. But I knew that I wanted to explore, uh, you know, marriage versus single life, uh, m- marriage without kids versus marriage with kids, uh, you know, breakups, like all, all these different kinds of aspects, which I'm hoping will be, you know, kind of re-explored if I'm able to do multiple seasons of the show, um, that, you know, we're just kind of like scratching the surface of even how these characters' relationships will change with each other. Like, ideally, over multiple seasons, we would keep introducing new characters, but also be revisiting the, the couples or the individuals that we're seeing in season one. And so maybe a couple that's married in season one will be divorced oh, seasons from now. And maybe a couple who, uh, you know, breaks up in season one will be back together in season three. And, and so, you know, the, the, the different ways that I've seen all this play out in my own life, you know, ideally we're exploring over the course of the show. Are you saying that, you know, many seasons that you know? I, I, I don't, I just have ideas. I have sort of big ideas, but part of what's like appealing to me about the format is that I don't know and don't have to know, you know, when I, usually when you're pitching a TV show, that's going to follow one storyline over multiple seasons, you, you know, a, a network would want you to pitch how you see that progressing over the course of several seasons. And so um, it was nice to say to the people at Netflix, I actually don't know. I don't even yeah. know how these episodes are going <laughs> right, to go. Right. Um, and so it, it's cool because the show will always get to, you know, incorporate what's happening politically in the country, incorporate, uh, you know, new ideas that the actors or I have, and maybe we don't know right now. And so having to decide for these characters in advance is really limiting. And so, you know, what I'm hoping is as I change and as they change over the years, all that stuff, you know, the show's format is open enough that that all gets incorporated. Yeah. You were mentioning the actors through your career. You've worked a lot with improvisation. Um, walk me through a bit how you work with the writing on a script when you improvise that much? Yeah. So, you know, I, I do a lot of writing with the actors, not, not writing, writing, but talking, writing, mm-hmm. um, in the lead up to creating something that looks like an outline. And, you know, I, I, these have never had any kind of rigorous format in the films or in this season of easy, uh, it depends on the episode and the idea, you know, and so some of some of them are more detailed and written and mapped out. Others of them are just kind of full of loose ideas and they exist primarily for scheduling and budgeting reasons, you know, not not so much creatively. Uh, and we're referring to them every once in a while. But for the most part, we kind of know the story already because we've talked through it and. So, you know, I, I would definitely consider it writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say of the eight episodes of Easy this season, uh, if you were to look at those outlines, they would pretty closely resemble the final episode. But once we get to set, 
the dialogue is definitely improvised. And I would say that we try and create a schedule that allows flexibility for even the storyline to be improvised because something may, some revelation may happen on set as we're shooting that didn't occur to us. I want to be able to incorporate that. But I can imagine that not all actors are comfortable. I mean, they want to finish script to be able to do their job. Um, have you been turned down by actors? Yeah. I'm like, mean, no, uh, I can't work like that. Well, definitely. I mean, that's, I, I've learned that that's sort of the first conversation I have with actors before we get into anything else is explaining the process and making sure that that's something they're interested in. And yeah, plenty of actors have said, listen, this is not how I work. I like to build the character from the page. And that's, uh, that's actually the best conversation I could have with an actor as opposed to saying, yes, I definitely want to do it. And then getting there and, and, you know, kind of like uh, clashing with the process. Right, right. Because your stuff is pretty personal, too. I imagine some of the ideas that your actors come up with are, you know, stuff that they've experienced in relationships. And they, I guess you have to talk that through, right? For sure. I mean, I, I need to be working with, uh, you know, what I say to actors these days is that ideally, uh, you know, you would be playing a version of yourself. But, you know, we get to... Um, give you a fake name and a fake career and a fake house that you live in. And, you know, in a perfect scenario, the, the kind of artificial surface level elements would allow for more personal uh, sharing because they're not, you know, tied to themselves playing themselves. You know? But do you have any example from Easy, one of the actors or any of the actors that really gave even more of themselves than you had expected to their role? Well, I think, uh, you know, of all of the characters, I would say Mark Maron's character uh, maybe feels the most related, but, uh, but that's probably a byproduct of his own career uh, and what audiences already know about him from what he's chosen to share on his own shows, you know? Do you want to take your coat off and stay a while? No, or what I don't we... think so. I don't. I, I think I'm okay with my coat on. Oh, no. <laughs> what happened? What's I, happened? I read the I read the comic. The new book. You read my book. I read your book, okay. yes. Okay, and how was that? Did you like it? Of course. I'm, you know, I... Just so you know, I would prefer that I wasn't involved in any future work of yours. Okay, does that I, seem fair? No, to I understand you? what you're saying. I, I don't. I don't know if it's fair, if, if that's the word, but like, it's kind of. It's a little negotiable at this point. A little it's nego negotiable. Why do I, I, I don't have Great. to use your. Just wait. Just hear me out. I don't have to use your real name. Oh. I, I, that, yeah, I just don't. How bad I is don't that? think that's right. I think I need to go. Okay. That was a really nice working relationship for me, working with Mark, because you know he's. Ba we basically have very similar attitudes about. Uh, the creation of the work. You know, he's doing a lot of that in the comedy space and I've maybe been working more in, in dramatic territory, but for the most part, I think we're, we're sort of aesthetically and formally aligned in that, you know, talking about yourself, as long as there's uh, some distance and an awareness of the audience is a really interesting way in to telling stories. And so... So beyond that, I would say that all the actors uh, surprised me throughout, you know. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I like to work this way. I'm usually able to actually see the work as an audience member would, you know. Mm -hmm. Like, like I'm, not, I'm not trapped by 
what I wrote beforehand or what I'm envisioning these characters are going to say, you know? So, so when you're working from a script, you know, you have, if you, if you've written the script, then you already know in your head sort of exactly how you hope this is performed. And then you're trying to like fit the actors into that. But how, how does it, I mean, cause I'm thinking you're, you're the writer, you're the director, you're the editor, and you, you must have a lot of budget in your head and yeah. not much budget. I mean, how many takes can you do, for example? Can you just let people improvise and like, oh, let's take all day on this scene? I mean, you must yeah. be kind of stressed out that it's going to well, work out. No, it, it, it's actually like a not stressful at all uh, working environment. I mean, I, I did that on purpose. Like coming out of film school where we did, you know, we, we I went to a really experimental film school. I mean, we were encouraged to be weird and do things differently. But, you know, as a 20-year-old who wants to go direct movies, you're trying to do things in the normal way mm -hmm. because you want to get a job afterwards. You know, it's kind of like uh, uh, you're emulating real movies. And so, you know, ha having been through the experience of student films and not having liked anything that I or any of my friends made within that process, I got out of film school and thought there must be a better way to do this, especially with, with a low budget and inexperience. There must be a way to utilize that to our advantage as opposed to making just cheap looking, you know, Hollywood right, movies. Right. And so, you know, it was born out of a process of knowing I was going to be working with non-professional actors, knowing we weren't going to have any money and, and looking around and saying, okay, what do we have access to? What story could we do a good job telling? Well, now that I have more money and professional actors, the process is still exciting and interesting to me because I don't know what's going to happen and because I get to sit there on the first take and actually be surprised by what happens. And then, you know, that allows, at least for me, allows me to stay engaged and excited about the process in a different kind of way. But now that you're with like a big player like Netflix, or do they get sort of freaked out when you're like, oh, we're going to let the actors do this scene. If they got freaked out, they did a good job hiding. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> uh, I, I, that, was, that was built into the pitch for the show from the beginning, though. And, and, and what's nice now uh, is that I have a lot of films under my belt that, you know, sort of display the process at work. And so I would say before Drinking Buddies, it was maybe difficult to imagine, but you know, there was something that was very concrete about having famous actors uh, working in the same process that I'd used with, you know, my friends and non-professionals. And so I think that Drinking Buddies really changed the industry's perception of how that looks because people liked the movie. And a trust and, for you. Yeah, exactly. They were like, okay, great. So these are, these are four actors who each have their own, you know, working methods, their own careers they all look like they're unified in this movie and belong to the same world. And so therefore, you know, we're going to make an assumption that uh, you could emulate this again in the TV format. If we want to get married, which we do, I would love to reopen the floor for that conversation. Absolutely. I don't think that this is working. And I think eight months is enough time to know whether something's going to work. Tonight, no! significant other because I no longer have one. To 
being in our house and hanging out with us. To our new kid. Oh. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. The problem with heartbreak is that to you, it's it's like an atomic bomb, and to the world, it's just really cliche because in the end, we all have the same experience. Um, in general, why do you think that relationships, sort of between man and woman, or or you know, man and man, whatever, the, the loving relationships between adults, is has been such a big topic for you throughout your whole career, all your your prolific career? Um, I, I think it's underexplored. I mean, I, I think I keep going back to it because I'm not seeing uh, much that's engaging to me, or much that feels connected to maybe the way my wife and I navigate our relationship or the conversations I'm having with friends about what's going on. Um, so, you know, it's interesting because there's obviously uh, an overabundance of shows and movies about heterosexual relationships. You know, we have entire genres devoted uh, just to these kinds of like romantic comedy notions. But, you know, it's very few and far between that I see something that I, that, that I'm like, Oh wow, that's really real. I'm, I'm, I'm like getting the privilege of eavesdropping within somebody's actual personal life. And so, you know, I would say that that's because every once in a while, a really good script uh, attaches the right actors and sort of gains the right momentum to uh, make it through the process unharmed. And you know, for the most part, I think that stuff is always in a process of being watered down as it makes its way towards an audience. And so the idea of the improv and the idea of the show was to see if we could manage to not water it down at all, you know, to kind of capture that stuff in, in a really intense and visceral kind of way. Right. Your wife is also a filmmaker. Um, and, uh, you seem to have done sort of kind of Cassavetes style, uh, lots of stuff at home and your son and your kids have been in, in your movies. Um, has all this exploring about relationships sort of given you your own definition of what a real solid marriage is? Um, I would say that, that my, my personal life is distinct from the work for me. Um, though it bleeds, uh, you know, it only bleeds in one direction. I'm, ha- I'm happy to share my personal life with the work. Uh, but then I don't think that the work is, is informing my idea of my relationship or my family or anything like that. Okay. So you're not exploring stuff in your work that you bring back. I I don't think so. I mean, it's usually traveling in the other Mm -hmm. direction, the desire for me and not just my relationship. I mean, you know, it, it would be, uh, discredit to the actors to say that they're not also, generating a lot of these ideas and you know in many ways I'm I feel often that I'm functioning as an editor you know that I'm I'm the sort of collecting pool of those ideas and then I'm kind of choosing which ones we're gonna deal with but you know everybody I'm working with is throwing the ideas into the pot and so um so I, I don't know that I'm having an experience very often where I'm looking at my own work and learning uh, from it in a way that it's like radically transforming my relationship. I think for me, it's, it's been always much more about, uh, a feeling that I get from other people's work, which I learn a lot from where I say, okay, their decision to share that in their work has had such a profound impact on me and my relationship that, uh, you know, it's like, I owe it 
to reciprocate by being as honest uh, in my own work as that artist was in their work. And so that, that, that's like uh, much more the spirit of where that stuff's coming from, I think. As opposed to like personal therapy or something. No, no, right. But I mean, you guys, one year, I think you you read, did made six movies in one year. You're incredibly, I, I don't, I'm not sure if your wife makes as many movies at the same time, but I mean, you guys must discuss a lot just how do you get your life together when you actually see each other, what you do with your. Yeah. Well, that, that navigating, that's definitely been challenging. I mean, now that we have, you know, we have two kids now and so. There's a desire not to be in production at the same time okay. so that one of us can be sort of leading the way with parenting duties. And so, you know, the, the, the scheduling and logistics are always complicated. Um, and there's an emotional toll as well. I mean, I, you know, the, no doubt, like, making work like this involves being intimate with other people choosing to share a lot with other people. And so um, I do think that there's the, you know, always the need to uh, prioritize the relationship and make sure that the work is not having a negative effect on the relationship. But, you know, it helps that my wife and I are, are similar artists and understand each other, you know, sort of encourage the, the, uh, encourage each other's work and, and, the desire to want to explore and ask these questions with other people. And, and, and that kind of cross-pollinization, uh, you know, when I say I'm not learning anything from my own work, I guess I mean from the finished work, um, but certainly the ability to work with other artists and uh, collaborate in the way that I do, I learn a tremendous amount from because I view the the movies and the show as possibilities to kind of drop the polite exterior that most of us need, you know, especially in a workplace environment. Uh, most people actually need to put up additional boundaries of professionalism and a kind of like, uh, uh, you know, a, a strong facade so that their personal life isn't affected by, you know, work life for the office or something like that. Um, But, you know, I, I've chosen to work in the arts because, uh, you know, it's the opposite where, you know, we're allowed to ask each other questions. We're allowed to push emotional buttons. We're allowed to go uh, as far beyond the surface layer as we want to or as, you know, as the group decides to. And so I do learn a lot that, that then comes back and informs uh, my relationship. Yeah, you were mentioning that the great, great episode with Mark Maron and Emily Ratajkowski. Can, can you, I'm telling yeah, her name Ratajkowski, right? Ratajkowski, yeah. Ratajkowski, yeah. And, and which is great. It's sort of about what's private life and what's public life and, and what you can share as art and what you can't. Yeah. And you've done a lot of that, of course, as we were saying before when your movies. Where are your boundaries? Where do you personally draw the line with your family and your ideas? Um, I would say that most of that's about communication. I mean, as long as, uh, you know, I never want to put a movie out that, that catches my wife off guard, you know, or, or, or sort of like exposes her in a way that she didn't desire to be exposed. And so that's about talking, you know, or, or her making sure, uh, before I do something that she's aware of that or, you know, um, 
But, you know, the, the debate within that episode between Mark and Emily, I think, is, is exciting and interesting to me because, you know, I also feel entitled to uh, explore my own life however I want in the work, you know, that, that my thoughts and feelings uh, don't require permission to be shared by me. And so it's, you know, it's a complicated process. And of that includes that. other people. that have Well, e- exactly. And so, uh, y- you know, you pick and choose your battles, basically. But, I mean, you're, you're an artist. You're compared to Cassavetes and Von Trier and, and, and directors from the French New Wave, while you have the sort of Kardashians who put up a bunch of stuff of their private life. And, and we probably don't see that as artistic. You know what I mean? What would you say is the difference? Well, I don't know that there's much of a difference. I mean, in the in the last several years, I've I've really started thinking about life in terms of not only the time period that we're alive, but also in the sort of like thousands of years uh, collecting pool of like the art that is still relevant or interesting. And you know, the conclusions that I've come to at this point in my life are that we have no idea which art is valuable in our own lifetime. Uh, Often the stuff that is the most highly praised or the most commercially viable uh, is totally forgotten about. And this weird, uh, underappreciated or or often totally unseen work, uh, you know, several hundred years later is the most fascinating and interesting. And so uh, having removed myself from from the notion that we would have any control over this or that any of that matters. Uh, I, I feel comfortable saying that Kim Kardashian's book of selfies may very well be the best piece of art produced <laughs> in our lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And, and we just don't know that. Right. Uh, it really will depend what people 300 years from now think of that book. But what about the critics and people right now why isn't her book of selfies being compared to to Fontrier? i'm increasingly i would say like the older i get the more aware i am of of the structure uh and and the reasons the structure exists right like the sort of gatekeeping structure and you know there's like uh i think a lot of anger that develops if you've spent uh several years or decades of your life trying to get good at a particular kind of socially acceptable art Mm -hmm. and then somebody else gets to publish a book. Let's say you're a photographer Mm -hmm. who struggled to master photography, right? Mm -hmm. I I personally do not believe there's such a thing as mastering photography. Okay. (laughs) That's another discussion. (laughs) Let's say you believe that you can master photography and that there's such a thing as a good photograph and a bad photograph. Well, if you spent a long time trying to get good at making good photographs and you feel like you're making progress and you're struggling to get a book of your photographs published, it's totally understandable to me why that Kim Kardashian book would be such a slap in the face and in general represent just the epitome of everything that's wrong with culture right now. But that's assuming that the culture you value is right. Right, right. She may still be a visual genius. Absolutely. And also, you know, I mean, she's essentially made a career out of a kind of performance art that we just haven't seen before. So I I may have my own personal 
judgments on that, but I also am nowhere close to, to ready to discount it. Um, and I also think that, you know, having as many problems as I do with the current power structure and the current art world, um, you know, I, I'm like, uh, totally open to people crashing the gates and, and like, you know, reorienting what we think of as, uh, art or good art or bad art. You know, I'm not, I, I guess I would say I'm not threatened by it. Right. You right. know, and, and also I've come personally from a place where with my first couple movies and the work that was made by the, you know, mumblecore filmmakers, I, I was a firsthand witness to several people within the industry saying, this is great. This is totally fresh and exciting. It's really cool what you guys are doing. And other people saying, this is the end of movies. Right. These are these are garbage, you know? Like, like, this is just a bunch of idiots with cameras, you know, like making home movies with their friends. And I felt at the time like both sides were a little bit right about that. And both sides were also missing uh, some of the points. And... So, you know, when, when I see Kim Kardashian's book or, you know, anything that's considered outside of, uh, like, like Emily's selfie art within the episode, exactly. uh, you know, to me, I'm like, everybody, every artist should feel free to do whatever they want. And every audience is free to have whatever action they want to that. But, you know, we live in a culture and a climate where increasingly I'm seeing that people want the work that they don't like just to disappear right you know but doesn't it have to do with also sort of that one feels like they're selling something all the time if it's like it's the selfie is taken because of the lipstick or um or in that case but that and that and it can still be art but that people haven't really come over that boundary yet <laughs> that so well we uh, we're I mean, all selling stuff all of us yes, too that, that, i mean that's exactly right. <laughs> i mean our commercial art uh, it's actually one of the reasons why, uh, from an ethical standpoint, I feel so good about working for Netflix. The only thing Netflix is selling is entertainment, which that's a product I believe in and feel good about selling. And, you know, there's no commercials that they're trying to uh, put in between the episodes. They're not syndicating this stuff to other places. Uh, and they're like an old studio model where basically, you know, they're creating entertainment and the entertainment succeeds or fails based on people subscribing to Netflix, as opposed to everything on cable and, and network television, and as opposed to places like Amazon, which are attempting to sell you lawnmowers and, you know, do you books think and you ever, If you get the right project, would you go to something like that? I mean, I, 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 I personally right now have a hard time squaring it. Mm -hmm. So maybe is my answer. Okay, okay. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, I've learned never to say never because circumstances are always changing, but you know, I don't make commercials and I know a lot of filmmakers who do make commercials. And for me, that crosses a, a boundary where I, I don't, I don't like that, uh, you would be using your talent to help a corporation sell products that people don't need 
to people, you know, like that. Like Do you that. enjoy a good, huge Hollywood blockbuster? Definitely. But, you know, if there are moments in those films that I'm not enjoying, it's the moments that are obviously product placement. You know, it, 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 it's essentially where I'm seeing the commercial. So, but, but, you know, and I also acknowledge I'm not uh, naive enough to not think that all of it is a commercial for a certain type of lifestyle or a certain type of capitalist uh, ideal. And so I think with easy, uh, uh, I felt great about being on Netflix. I still do. I'm really hoping that company keeps running itself the way they currently are. Mm -hmm. And I feel really good that the show is challenging uh, the narrative that that you grow up, meet the love of your life, get married, have kids, and live happily ever after. Mm. It's not <laughs> it's not how I see it going. <laughs> even if that's just challenging the narrative to say it's a really hard struggle, you know, as opposed to like it ought to be easy. Because I think that that false narrative makes a lot of people feel crazy when they're finding themselves in challenging relationships. Because they're like, why is this so hard for us? It seems so easy for everybody else. And that's because entertainment has misrepresented those relationships as easy from the very beginning. Right, right. That's what you see. Uh, um, I have to ask you something because I'm in Sweden. In 2000, I think it was 11, the New Yorker compared you to Bergman. Uh -huh. and, <laughs> and, and here in Sweden, I mean, either that's, that's amazing or that's really scary. Yeah. <laughs> um, different to different people. What do you think yeah. of that comparison? Uh, well, I, I, you know, I mean, that's, uh, I, I don't really have a take on it. I mean, I, I don't, while I am a fan of Bergman's films, I wouldn't say uh, that the comparison is especially close to home at this point in my life in terms of why I make the work or where I'm coming from with the work. Um, but uh, other than to say that he's one of the filmmakers that certainly car carved the path that I'm able to enjoy now, decades later. Um, but, you know, I, from the very beginning of my career, like, I, I think getting out of film school where I, you know, I went to film school because I loved and wanted to emulate other filmmakers and their careers. And I think that by the time I came out of film school, uh, I realized that the only way that I could really pay back uh, what they had given me is to try and carve my own path, you know? And so there isn't any filmmaker you could compare me to where I would feel a swell of pride at the comparison. You know, in general, uh, it's not the goal that I'm after. And so, I, I mean... I think this, this article had a lot to do with your sort of camera work and, and how you were very close to your actors yeah, and approaching yeah, things. But yeah. there was another thing I was thinking about. I'm not sure if this is a story, but do you know the story of that Bergman punched a critic? No. Um, he was, he had this critic that he felt very, like after him personally, yeah, that just yeah. kept going after him. And his yeah. daughter had also started directing, I think the story is, and, and he, this critic came after her as well. Yeah. And finally he very calculated said, I'm just going to punch him out because that yeah. means that we will have a, a beef and he won't yeah. be able to write, he won't be allowed to write yeah. about me anymore. So he yeah. did. And he always <laughs> said it was worth it. And then I was reading that you had this thing where you punched a critic, but I think that was more organized. Yeah, it was. It was, a, it was an official boxing match with, with a boxing critic? gloves on yeah with a critic but did it feel good 
Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, actually, I mean, not saying hidden, no, but I, just I, in general to talk to a critic. Well, it felt good until he was, he, he had a really bad attitude about it and then it was not fun. And so, you know, it was sort of done in the spirit of fun. And so, then, so what do you mean that? Cause it was like an organized thing. Yeah, it was, it, it's an event in Austin, Texas called fantastic fest. It's a film festival. And one of the, one of the things that they do every year is they have these debates where uh, sometimes it's filmmakers and critics, sometimes it's critics and critics, sometimes it's like actors, you know, it's, but, but <laughs> the idea is that they'll debate, uh, they'll stand at podiums and do an oral debate, and then at the conclusion of the oral debate, they'll put on boxing gloves and box <laughs> each other. And so uh, I, I love fantastic fest and tim league who you know created the alamo draft house cinemas mm -hmm. and so when they asked me to do it i said yes right away and I, you know i sort of understood the spirit of these debates and the other thing that i knew from talking to people is that tim who's the founder of that festival was always frustrated because people never fought for real he always wanted it to be a real oh, really? box it was too yeah. lame okay it was too like everybody was just pretending basically okay. And so I knew that if I was going to go do it, I was going to give it 100% because that was the <laughs> spirit. That's what Tim wanted, you know? Um, and so I got paired up with a critic who didn't like my movies. And so we had the oral debate. And then when we started boxing, uh, you know, both of us were really swinging. Mm -hmm. And, you know, afterwards, I was ready to be friends with him. You know, it wasn't, I, I didn't have hatred for him no, at no. all but he was really mean afterwards you know okay. i could tell that he took it seriously and so then i then it was less fun for me in retrospect because i you know it should have been when it ended it should have been fun right right i mean but it, and on a serious note in general how do you feel about critics i mean i'm, I'm pretty sure as sort of an independent filmmaker one can feel that they can make or break you almost more than a big well, I think they can only break you. I mean, my, my, my feeling really? as a filmmaker, yeah, I, I think that uh, I've noticed in my own career that uh, glowing reviews haven't really changed the fate of any of my movies, but bad reviews certainly dissuade people from seeing them. So, so, you know, I think that the critics are feeling their loss of power in general. You know, I do think in the 70s, uh, there was a time period where critics had a lot of cultural influence and you had famous, you know, famous critics. But these days, I don't think audiences, you know, the, the Internet has really uh, created a, a world in which critics, uh, you know, don't have really like big mainstream voices that often anymore. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of frustration coming from critics who feel that they're living in a time period where the work they're doing is undervalued. Do you like sort of non-professional fan critics? I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say I like any of it really. I mean, I, I still like journalists, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I like, uh, there are a lot of critics who do work outside of reviewing films. Right. That write I don't about your films. I, yeah. I don't think a film review, uh, is, is ever all that interesting to me, you know? Uh, but I do think that there are articles about film and filmmakers that puts things in historical context or are educational and exciting. And so, you know, there are a few film critics that I uh, keep up with mm -hmm. and because I think they're good writers. 
but you know, I, I don't know that the movie review is a format that's that's like ever been that insightful. But I do think that the that that there are a lot of interesting movie reviews, and and often they're written by not professional film critics. You know, I, I, I'm sort of interested, I guess, in reading what other filmmakers have to say about films because I think they write about film in a different way mm-hmm. from a more nuts and bolts practical standpoint. And so to me, that's always interesting because I know too much about how a film gets made, you know, like a film review that's written in a vacuum uh, is pretty irrelevant to me because you you have to consider the process. Because the reviews for Easy, for example, are glowing, I mean, across the board, but that you say that that doesn't help you or affect you? I I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe some people are going to watch it because they read those reviews, but I think most people are watching the show because of the actors. And I think that in general, like uh, a huge overwhelming push of good reviews maybe gives something a bit of a boost. But I don't think it's like it used to be where, you know, a New York Times review could could suddenly, you know, like push a movie out into the mainstream. I, I haven't seen that happen in my lifetime. I'm going to let you go very soon. I just have one more thing that, that I thought was really interesting reading about you is that you're so prolific. How many movies have you made? What, you're 35? I'm 35, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, made, I, I think that I'm finishing number 19 mm-hmm. or 20. Mm-hmm. And the series. And the series, yeah. 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 Um, and what you said in a speech at South by Southwest that being prolific and just working like crazy um will make people lose the will to fight against you you said and i find that because that's sort of like my with my project and what i yeah. do, just work 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 and and try yeah. not to, to take what people are saying or what yeah. going ahead of you in other ways and and do you still feel that way a hundred percent i mean i i think also the more you're consumed by the work the, the more you realize that none of that stuff really matters anyway I mean, you're, you're only as an artist really locked in to your battle with yourself, you know? And so uh, what I've found is that in times where my personal life has been uh, stressful or unhappy, no, no, no amount of uh, positive response to the work could change that for me. And in times where my personal life's been really happy and good, no amount of negative criticism could affect me either you know it's that that they're really disconnected things and so I I find that I have to be proud of the work and I have to feel like I'm pushing myself and progressing and as long as I feel that way uh you know I I keep moving forward and uh making what I consider to be the only work I should be making and so uh times in my life where I've felt especially competitive with some other filmmaker or especially sorry for myself because I thought other people were getting things they didn't deserve. You know, like none of that stuff uh, has mattered to me when I'm in the midst of a project that I love. And so, you know, it it, comes creeping up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's it's human nature. We all have it. (laughs) I, I think so. But, but for me, it's like the, it's the, aspect of human nature that's worth fighting against you know it's worth squashing whenever it feels like it's creeping up and I don't think I mean I would say I've been fortunate to make uh work that does not attract awards or that kind of attention um 
And so I exist in this really interesting space where I'm, uh, you know, sort of like a small indie filmmaker who's not uh, an awardsy, prestigious uh, indie filmmaker. I basically have like existed by whether the work is commercial or not. And so I'm really happy about that now because there's no pressure. Really, there's no pressure for me outside of my own desire for an audience to connect to the work. It's not, it's not really uh, being compared to much else, you know? But considering the quality of work you're putting out and the bigger and bigger projects, um, can I call you back when you are the awards director? Yeah. <laughs> and you're living that life and we'll see how you're doing well, in work here, and love. <laughs> here's what I'll do. Here's what I'll say right now so that okay. when we have that conversation – uh, I'll play this. <laughs> remind me of it. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's really silly that adults have like trophy ceremonies for each other. <laughs> I mean, I really think that the awards circuit and like all that stuff is just a, a genre uh, more than anything else. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, when, when the end of the year comes around and all the Oscar movies come out, like to me, an Oscar movie is like a horror movie, it's just a type of movie. Uh, that's genre. not any better or worse than anything else other than uh, it's an effective marketing strategy to like stand on a stage and hold up trophies. So they pay for them, you know? I mean, it's a dog and pony show. So my, my hope would be that uh, I could spend the rest of my life never being nominated for an award. Okay, but, but when you are and you have that trophy, I will talk to you again. <laughs> I'm sure you and your wife will be very proud anyway. <laughs> Thank you so much to Joe Swanberg. Easy is streaming on Netflix right now. And thank you for sharing and commenting on the show. Keep doing that on our Twitter at PodPopCulture, our webpage, popcultureconfidential.com, and check out our Instagram. This show was edited by Tom Hansen, music by Carl Boy, and produced by René Wittestedt and myself. I'm Christina jörling Biro. Thank you so much. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.